ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could, would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Cause we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. This episode is brought to you by AARP. 16 years from today, Greg Gerstner will finally land the perfect cannonball. Epic Splash. Unsuspecting friends. A work of art only possible because Greg is already meeting all these same people at AARP volunteer and community events that keep him active and involved and help make sure his happiness lives as long as he does. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org local. Grant Thornton is a proud partner of the Players' Championship and the PGA Tour. We believe the status quo leaves the business world spinning its wheels. We help organizations combat it by offering fresh thinking, collaboration, and the audit, tax, and advisory services they need to achieve their future faster. Welcome to Status Go. For more information, visit grantthornton.com slash theplayers. Welcome into this special edition of the Golf Channel Podcast. I'm your host, Will Gray, and this episode is brought to you by our friends at Grant Thornton, and we're shaking things up a little bit today. We are doing a live audience podcast here on the grounds in the clubhouse at TPC Sawgrass. We've got a breakfast crew here, and I am joined by two very special guests. Always good to be sitting next to a major champion, and I am today Trevor Immelman, 2008 Masters champion. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. And I have with us Dan Price, the CEO of Gravity Payments. And Dan, thank you much for, for joining us today. Hey, hey. There you go. So we're, as I said, we're doing this a little bit differently. We're going to focus on, on the mental side of things. Trevor, for you, it's going to be about the mental side of golf, uh, Dan, if you want to talk about golf, you can shake things up if you want. But I, I want to know about how you've built a culture at Gravity Payments. I want to open this up to both of you. I'll start with Trevor. What is the biggest misconception about the mental side of golf? Well, probably just how simple it is. Uh, I think that, you know, we're kind of spoiled when we turn on our televisions um, on the weekends decide to sit back and watch some golf and just see how easily these players get it done uh, and with the kind of regularity that they play great golf. And um, one of the real nuances with golf that make it so different to every other sport is the fact that as a golfer, you're, you're on an island out there, much like the 17th green here <laughs> at, uh, at Sawgrass. Um, you know, I don't have another all-star to pass the ball to if I'm struggling. I don't have, you know, if I'm a baseball pitcher having a tough day after three or four innings that pull me out of the game, you know, and bring in the lefty. I don't have that as a professional golfer. And so um, you got to be pretty tough out there at times because when, when a golf, when a, when a game is, uh, a round of golf is not going your way and, uh, and you're facing all kinds of adversity, you don't quite have it that day, um, you just gotta, just gotta keep going. You gotta keep fighting through it. You gotta post that score. Uh, you're gonna have analysts like me and you <laughs> after the round. Uh, now that I do TV, breaking that down, uh, second guessing your decisions, second guessing your technique, 
And uh, so, you know, just there really are distractions wherever you look. And so you've got to be tough. You've got to have a lot of self-belief. And uh, you just got to keep plugging away. Dan, I feel like those have to be some common themes for, for your side of the fence in terms of it might seem simple, but oftentimes it's not. Well, absolutely. And I think the biggest misconception that applies to all of us is we're all the CEO of our own life. We're all the CEO of our own career. And we all have to think of ourselves as entrepreneurs in 2019. And, you know, being a CEO, being an entrepreneur, it's a lonely place to be at times, but there's also a connectedness because you can affect change, you can, you can make a difference. And I think that the old way of thinking about things, which is the misconception is, you know, my company is going to take care of me, the system's going to take care of me. And I think that uh, we're, we're moving into a time where we have to take way more personal responsibility for what we're doing. And then from that place of strength, we can find a way to help other people, to take responsibility to, for other people. But only when we understand that core fundamental of, just like Trevor's saying, I have to take responsibility to perform and I have to be the one to get myself into that place. I can't just think it's going to happen to mm -hmm. me anymore. Well, I want to talk for a moment about uh, you and your specific company. A lot of our listeners might not know Gravity Payments, but they might know your story as, as we get into it, that it was back in 2015 that you grabbed some headlines and you said, everyone in my company is going to make $70,000 at a minimum. And that was certainly a bold initiative, I'll say, and, and it's one that, that garnered you and Gravity Payments a lot of attention. But talk me through that in terms of what that did to culture and kind of the, the ripple effects that, that led to. Well, I was on a hike uh, with a friend of mine who was telling me that a $200 rent increase was going to make it so that she her life didn't work anymore financially. And it devastated me because, you know, she uh, had two tours in Iraq. She was in the Army. She's somebody I really admired, hard worker, works a lot of hours. And I decided I didn't want to be a part of a company that did that. The only problem was that I owned and founded a company <laughs> that was doing that to people. And so it, it put me in a really uh, tough moral dilemma. And the only way I could make it work was by uh, cutting my own pay by a million dollars down to $70,000 so that everybody could make that minimum amount. And at the time, we had people working at Gravity making $30,000, $35,000 a year, a third of the company. And some of those uh, folks, uh, that was the most that they had ever made. And so in an instant to have a plan put into place, you know, to, to have a living wage, it, it did garner a lot of attention externally. But what was way more meaningful to us was the way it changed people's lives internally. So we went from having zero to two babies born in the company per year to now we've had like 40 since then. <laughs> we, uh, we tripled our savings rate. Um, a lot of people getting out of debt, getting out of college debt. And so it's just like the way that we've constructed our financial system, it doesn't really work for the younger generation. It doesn't work for a lot of people right now because we saddle people with debt. They're not making a living wage. And so these types of solutions are what I think we have to lean into to figure out how do we move forward in the world and still find success that's both shared but also gives us uh, what we need uh, in terms of the autonomy to see the change that we want in the world. Well, those changes that you spoke about certainly put you, you and Gravity Payments on the map in, in a certain respect, and it was a, kind of a quick change and a sudden shift in, in perception for you guys. And Trevor, 
uh, as we get closer to Magnolia Lane. I'm mm. sure that smile creeps on your face because you yeah. you know a little bit about this just because you know you were certainly a well-established golfer. You were a PGA Tour winner, but winning the Masters changes things. Absolutely. And what to, you know, walk us through that from from your perspective in terms of just adjusting to the external perception mm. of. On Monday of Masters Week, I'm Trevor Immelman, PGA Tour golfer, <laughs> and I leave Augusta Trevor Immelman, Masters champion, and that's never going to change. Mm. No, it's, it's never going to change, thankfully. There I've enjoyed <laughs> it. Um, it's, it's been amazing, but uh, yeah, you, uh, you're exactly right. Uh, you know, I, I'd had a very solid career up until then. I was top 20 in the world. I'd uh, been a professional for about 10 years, and, uh, you know, I was just on a kind of a nice steady climb in the game of golf. Uh, was, I was still uh, getting my butt kicked almost every week by Tiger Woods, but still, I was, felt like <laughs> I was lot, improving. You got a lot of company in that, in that boat. <laughs> and, uh, you know, all of a sudden, uh, particularly in those days, because there just weren't many players other than Tiger winning majors. I mean, he was just dominating the biggest events. And so for somebody to come through as kind of like a surprise winner, um, it was even more of a shock, really, for the golf world. And uh, so to have that perspective change all of a sudden and, uh, and be known as a major champion was, uh, was quite interesting to see how that perspective changed the way others saw me and as I saw myself. Because as a young kid uh, growing up in South Africa, um, just fell in love with the game and absolutely, I wouldn't say idolized, but admired uh, champions that had won events like that. And all of a sudden, uh, from my own standpoint, I had to come to grips with the fact that, whoa, you know, I've won the Masters. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of times you're kind of grappling with that in your own mind. And on top of that, you're seeing all of a sudden people who maybe, you know, wouldn't have been all that interested in you, or even maybe two weeks ago at the Zurich Classic of New Orleans or any other tournament, um, you know, the Players' Championship didn't want to you know, would just walk right by you without so high. All of a sudden, they're bringing <laughs> you master's flags to sign for their charities. And so, um, you know, it's a bit of a... Sh it, it, initially, it was a bit of a shock mentally to try and process that and understand all of that. Um, but, uh, you know, you just try your best to, uh, to kind of navigate that, that space and enjoy it as much as you can. And like Dan was saying, or, or the feeling that I get when I listen to you is... Um, you know, how am I going to use this platform to inspire as many people and help as many people as I can to help them achieve their dreams and goals? And so uh, that was, you know, once I kind of uh, let the dust settle and, and become a bit more comfortable with it myself, that was uh, the way I started looking at things. You win a major, you have a lot more friends. The next week on the range, you start giving $70,000 <laughs> minimums, you've got a lot more friends, right. I'm sure, that you guys, that, that changed things. But, but Applications go way Yeah, up. all of a sudden, that, that phone just starts buzzing. Uh, Natalie Morales tried to apply for the company on the Today Show one day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, where did I sign up? <laughs> yeah, there you go. But it's, it's got to be something where, you know, as you said, that the perception changes externally and internally, but I like the phrase you said, when the dust settles. And mm. I feel like it can apply for both of you guys, that there was that initial shock, and then, and then there were, you know, the afterquake. And, and then eventually you get back to a point where you can find some stability. But when we talk about goal setting, and where do I go next? After, Dan, for you, after you've set the, 
this $70,000 mark, and Trevor, you've got the green jacket in the closet. There's got to be a point where you say, all right, how do I move forward? What do I do next? And what was that process like for both of you in terms of getting to that next step? Well, I'm here today, you know, talking to a great group of business leaders that Grant Thornton's brought together, you know, their clients from all over. Uh, earlier in the week, I was talking to uh, leaders from Fortune 100 companies and trying to figure out how we can move forward and implement some of these policies. And of course, you know, my, my day job is, is demanding enough as it is, and it's a big responsibility. And my first loyalty has to be to the people that I'm working with every day and my clients. But it's like if we can have some of these conversations because a lot of people are like, well, in, I'm, not, I'm in an industry where $70,000 doesn't work or I'm in an industry where or a size a company where I can't really make some of those moves. And my thought is, you know, what can we do just to move forward, to, to make progress? And I think the, the old way of thinking is that it's, it's kind of always been a certain way. It's got to be that way. And like no one gave me $70,000 mm. kind of thing. But if you think about the opportunity you had, it was probably better than the opportunity somebody else had someday, someday before you. And so it's like, it, just as Trevor was saying, how do we use that platform to, to help everybody move forward? And it's really got to be a conversation. The first person I hired who was a long-term permanent employee for Gravity, he's still at the company, but his pay was $24,000 a year and no benefits. So there's not a single business person that I can look at and say, what you're doing is wrong mm -hmm. or I'm better than you because you know I've, I've tried it every which way, but what I'm finding is that the further that we can push each other forward, the better it is for everybody because we really end up sharing that. And to the extent we either systemically as a company or as an individual are lacking that integrity, it's going to come back and hurt all of us. So I just think we're a lot more connected now than, than what we realize. Trevor, I feel like when it comes to, to your career and where you were both before and after the 08 Masters, that there was, as we said, that that point of reflection and, and adjustment after that mm. in terms of setting goals. But, but going back to that week, there's always this chicken and egg phenomenon, I feel like, in sports and especially in golf of how do I get the results? How do I get the confidence without the results? How do I get the results without the confidence? Yeah. How do you win the Masters <clears throat> and, and believe innately that you have what it takes to be a Masters champion that week before you've got the green jacket on your shoulder? Well, I don't, I don't think you, you actually know until you do it. Um, you know, that's, that's the, the beauty of, of goals and dreams and, uh, and being inspired and being motivated. And, you know, from an athlete standpoint, setting goals, I think, is kind of a two-edged sword. I think it can, in certain aspects, it can work against you as well. Um, and I think that's where understanding yourself and understanding how you operate best is is almost more important. A lot of people are intimidated by setting goals. Uh, you know, a lot of times you'll be walking through an airport at, at a bookstore and you look, look at the books and it's like, okay, the 10 rules to do this or set goals and change your life. And a, a lot of people feel like they get put under so much pressure at that point that they can't actually go out there and thrive. They need a bit, they don't need those borders. They need the oppor opportunity to be able to, you know, some more free will, some more uh, area to which, you know, in which they can move in, a little more freedom to be able to be a little bit more natural. Um, and um, I'm one of those. Uh, you know, naturally, I've always been a hard worker. 
uh, very motivated, very dedicated. And so for me, the more I set goals, um, the more I just started to heap so much external pressure on myself that I wasn't able to play with the, the freedom and enjoyment and love for the game that I naturally have. I was actually suppressing that. Mm. And so uh, I think that's where, like, to be successful, and, you know, I've been fortunate enough to meet so many successful people from so many different walks of life. Just playing in pro-ams every Wednesday <laughs> for the last 20 years as a tour professional is um, the most successful people I've ever met. And, and just spending the last 10 or 15 minutes here with Dan is the most successful people are authentic. They are so comfortable in their own skin. They're natural, they're calm, they're relaxed. They're not trying to be something else. And uh, shucks, I always, every time I notice that, like meeting you this morning again, I was like, man, that, that's the secret, is you've got to find out uh, what your sweet spot is. What, you know, how are you most comfortable? Because as long as you're in that space, innovation and athleticism, and when you're talking about golf, speed, and imagination, all of that stuff is just going to come flying through. Well, I, I would say, you know, I'm really happy you won the Masters. If you hadn't, you'd be a great person. You would have had a great career. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's additive. It's like sure. if somebody felt so desperate, like, I have to win the Masters or, you know, I have to have a company, you know, that's a $100 billion company. You know, I have to beat Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and all these things. You end up sacrificing having a good life in some cases, yep. being a good person, having a big impact on the people around you. Those are the things that are actually going to matter to make your life good. And trying to hit all of those specific goals to kind of prove you're the best in a way. You know, it's like proving you're the best is making an impact, making a difference, living a good life. Mm. And that's what I love about what you're saying, yeah. Trevor. And, and, and uh, just to kind of piggyback off, off of that, um, you know, for myself, like I have like these crazy perfectionistic tendencies. <laughs> and, um, you know, when I was a kid and like in my formative years of acquiring my skill in the game of golf, it was awesome because it just like drove me to, to be out on the range, be out on the course, practicing, honing my skill. How can I get better? And it allowed me to get really good, really fast. But once you've, it's like, it's like a mountain like this. Once you get to that tip and you've acquired your skill, from that point on, being a perfectionist only hurts you. <laughs> and so, you know, that's like the ebb and flow of, of, of finding your sweet spot and then just seeing how long you can stay in that sweet spot. I feel like that's, that's true. We're at the, the Players' Championship. You walk out, <coughs> excuse me, you walk out on Tuesday morning, you see guys on the range, they're finding their, their sweet spot and they're working with the track man. Then you see the guys that are there at five o'clock Wednesday afternoon, and you say, "No, no, 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 no! Yeah. You are, you are digging a little too deep here, and you either have it at that point or you don't." But some weeks, some weeks you do, and some weeks you don't. Now, mm -hmm. I do want to turn things a little bit. We've said, you know, both of you have had great success in your respective careers, but it has not always come easy. Dan, for for you, you set this bar at seventy thousand. You had people quit, right? I mean, you had people yeah. walk away from the company yeah. because of this, and and so what was it like? to deal with the downtimes and to persevere and to know that you are still on the right path and to stay true to the decisions that you had made for both of you? Well, so um, I started my company originally because there was a coffee shop owner named Heather 
in Idaho, where I grew up, who helped my band. I grew up playing music. Shout out to Heather. Heather, and <laughs> she, she was just, you know, somebody who, like, was a great business owner. I just wanted to help her. And then my whole business grew just by meeting more Heathers. And um, I was having such a great time. And I started in 2004 and then 2005, and that was good. And then 2006 was good, and 2007 was good. And then, ooh, 2008 was kind of rough. <laughs> <laughs> and we, in what felt like overnight, lost, I don't know, about 20% of our business, and we just didn't have any margin for error. You know, I'd turned down venture capital. I'd done. I'd made all these moves that just created zero margin for error. And I remember laying in bed at night because, like, literally, we had we had like enough cash in the bank for like seven more months before the music was going to stop and we lose everything. And it was like, if everything goes perfectly, if we had no expenses and we keep growing the fastest we've ever grown in our history, maybe we get to zero in like five months, so no margin for error. And I used to just sit in bed at night and imagine just losing everything and make peace with it, make mm -hmm. peace with the fact that that failure could actually create a lot of success for me and the people around me and our clients, and especially if we did it with integrity. And so when all of our competitors were doing price increases and layoffs and all these things that we felt like if we engaged in that behavior, it would fundamentally change who we were as a company. And so it's like accepting that failure is part of life and accepting that the benefit that that can give you, those types of early formative moments make something like risking your entire company to, to try to pay everybody a living wage more doable and so what I would say is like in those tough times, leaning into it, really understanding who you are, what you're trying to accomplish, and then figuring out how to align your activity to that and being willing to, to take risks. I think we live in a world where, where we need to take risks, we need to go out there. And fortunately, you know, in my case, you know, if, if the business failed, I li still live in a, a great place with a lot of opportunity mm -hmm. and I can go out there and try to do something else. Well. Uh, I think adversity is key. Um, uh, you know, so often we're kind of afraid of it um, and, and concerned as, w as what could happen. But just look at the, the adversity he just explained to us and how he was able to innovate and grow from that. Mm -hmm. And so it's really where the, m the most opportunity is, is when you're in the greatest adversity. Mm. Uh, when things are going great, you know, uh, anybody can kind of keep it rolling. But the, the most opportunity is when you really feel like, man, what am I going to do now? Because now you have really, like in certain cases, like a blank canvas to really decide, okay, this is how I'm going to try and change things. Yep. And um, so, yeah, you know, that's why for me it's like, even when people say, oh, well, you should be, you know, working on thinking positively. I'm like, well, uh, maybe, <laughs> you know, but when I'm thinking negatively for a little while or for a period of time, you know, I could learn something there too. Don't be so afraid of these uh, labels and kind of stigmas that we've been sort of taught to just religiously abide by. I mean, like I said, in, in the greatest adversity, you, c you could figure things uh, out that uh, could change your life.
I, I actually think supporting what you're saying, Trevor, I think most people, if you think of the most success you've had, the things that you're most proud of, oftentimes they come after the greatest adversity. And the energy and the creativity that comes from that adversity mm -hmm. is what leads to that big success for a yeah. lot of people out there. You guys ever thought about writing a book together? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <We> got, <laughs> yes. This is, I feel like we got the, the start of something for, for two people that, that I'm, I'm met about an about hour. I'm about to start crying up here. It's, yeah, it's boy. It's emotional. This is, this is taking a turn here, but all in a good way. All right. Uh, it hasn't hit me yet, but maybe later. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of intersections between golf and business, and one of the big ones, I think, is, is strategy and strategic planning. And when you're on the course, you know, you're mapping out practice rounds, you're, you're putting together a plan of attack for a course like TPC Sawgrass, mm. and the same rules apply for business. I'll say to, to both of you, which is more important, the ability to plan in advance and set a, a strategy in place, or is it more important to be able to react in the moment and to dissect the situation and react to, to the elements as they come to you? Uh, for me, it's both. I don't, you know, I think you, you have to have both. If you t and if you take, like, let's take this golf course, for instance. It's a very strategic golf course from a standpoint of, shucks, you go out there, there's 18 holes, 13 of them have water on. Um, I haven't looked at today's pin sheet. Uh, I still have to do a little prep for our show You're at 11 o'clock. slacking already. But, but <laughs> like, like yesterday, there were 13 pins cut from within five yards or closer <coughs> to the edge of the green. So... The opportunities are there to go and shoot low scores, like we saw with a bunch of guys. Jim Furyk shot a uh, 64. But the train wrecks are also out there. So having a strategy and a game plan is, is vitally important. But what I've learned in the game of golf and uh, throughout my life is something unexpected is always going to happen. And if you are too dogged about your strategy or about what the rules are in certain cases, um, you're going to get caught out. You have to be able to be flexible. And, you know, I liken it to like um, an NFL player. You've got, you got, you got to be on your toes, ready to move in any direction um, to be able to adjust on the fly and, and at certain times get the victory and then at certain times, just, just stay in the game. Stay in the game so that if it's not this week, it's another week you can get the victory. I feel like the, the ability to improvise comes from having a really good game plan. Uh, you know, in, in the business world, if, if you know exactly where you're trying to get to and how you're trying to get there, and you have that foundation of trust and respect and clarity, um, you can really lean into the, the finer points of business, which I would describe as autonomy. You know, on my team, I want somebody to know that if they have the right thing to do in their mind, they're not going to turn away from that because it's not part of the plan. Mm. And so it's like we're each going to have our ability to improvise. We're going to have our autonomy, but it's going to come from a very clear game plan where we understand how we're supporting each other, how we're helping each other. And so for me, I really can't deconstruct those two elements. Well, Dan, you've talked about how you've invested financially back in your company through this salary initiative. But how important is it for you guys to build a culture where your employees can invest emotionally in the work that they do in the day-to-day? -day, and how is that paid out in the, in the overall results? Well, it's essential. And, you know, we're trying to help, like, mom-and-pop businesses, basically. Mm -hmm. And if you think of all your listeners you know, where you live, what makes it a great place? 
is the mom and pop businesses. Mm. What makes it a great place to work there? It's, it's a lot of independent businesses. And a lot of these business owners and founders and companies, they kind of do blood, sweat, and tears in a lot of industries where there's not a big payoff. And they'll, they'll really dedicate their life for the rest of, of the people around them. And the word that I would use to describe that would be like a hero. And so for us, that's what motivates us is we're trying to protect independent businesses from big companies that are trying to take advantage of them, from competition from bigger companies. And, and to me, anytime I sense a lack of, of that X factor, what I think is I haven't communicated that vision very well to the people that I'm working with. Because to me, it's so motivating, it's so inspiring that if, if somebody is like, well, you know, what, can we talk about my bonus? It's like, well, we can, but let's talk about the purpose of what we're actually trying to achieve here. And, and that is what takes us forward in that way is who are we helping? What are we doing for them? And for all the business owners out there or, or business leaders, if you're finding that your teams are not motivated, you might think, is your vision ambitious enough? Is the impact that you're making big enough to take the whole team forward? Trevor, when it comes to being a pro golfer, motivation is usually not the issue. But sometimes, I would say one of the biggest keys is having uh, sh short-term memory loss. You need mm. to be able to forget <laughs> about those 75s and 76s and be able to show up the next day believing that you can shoot a 68. What's the key to that in terms of sometimes when they go from poor rounds to poor weeks to poor seasons, how do you maintain that confidence and the belief in your plan that you set out for the next tournament you tee it up in? Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. It, uh, but it's possible. And it starts with, um, you know, once again, going back to what I said, being authentic, understanding the space that you perform best in, absolutely having a good team around you. Um, very important to have people around you that uh, understand the area in which you, you uh, perform your best. I think that's vital. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you just, you just got to keep putting yourself out there. A, a lot of times, as a golfer, you, uh, it's easy when you're struggling to kind of crawl into your shell and, um, and become very, very self-conscious. And so the, 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 the opportunity to just keep putting yourself out there, keep playing, uh, I think is important. You know, I, I look at a guy like Jordan Spieth right now, who is an amazingly accomplished golfer, three-time major winner. He's won 10 or 11 times on the PGA mm -hmm. Tour world number one. He's pretty much done everything there is to do in the game of golf. And he's going through a little rough patch and everybody is just kind of on his case. And what I tend to see from myself, from my own experiences and something that I'm seeing with, uh, with Jordan right now is the, uh, a lot of times people will just double down on the work and, and start to get lost away from the plan that has worked for them in the past. You know, just observing him this week, his coach is like just kind of right there with him all the time. Mm. And I'm watching it and I totally understand what's taking mm. place because the coach wants so badly to help him and, and help him get through this period. But in a lot of cases, it's almost like he just needs to take his foot off the gas a little bit and just take a step back and get a little bit of a different perspective on things 
And, um, and then, you know, once all that clears out, he can get back to, to playing his best golf. Dan, <coughs> excuse me, you mentioned earlier about trying to take on or avoiding the temptation of trying to take on Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, some big industry titans. Uh, Trevor, yours was named Tiger Woods. <laughs> and if you, just for the, for the record here, if you look at that 08 Masters leaderboard, Ilman won, Woods two. <laughs> it was there, and it's going to be there forever. But, but what is that like to, to try and take on the, big, the biggest Goliath in your respective industry? And, and is there a temptation to do so and maybe a need to pull back at certain times? I would say, you know, what I'm good at and what they're good at are two different things. And so it's really, a, it's not just a contest of me against another person, especially in the business world. It's really a contest of ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think the idea that is most traditional is we are all competing with each other to see who can make the most money, who can have the most valuable company. And I just kind of fundamentally reject that game. I'm kind of thankful that I didn't play golf because I think in <laughs> golf, you're kind of forced to abide yeah, by right. like a strict set of rules. But out there in the, in the game of life, you can make your own rules. And so for me, you know, what I want to accomplish is I think that business is going to shift and it's going to be about solving the problems of humanity. I think that's where the contest is going to go and away from having the most valuable company or making the most money. And I just want to be a, as big a part as possible of accelerating that shift. Even if I'm just a speck of sand in that shift, I want to be as big a part as, as possible. And, and so that's my idea. But what do I have to do to focus on that? I have to give up the game of, hey, you know, I could just be the next, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, multi-billionaire running around doing things like everybody else. And, and that, that goal, I have to give up that goal to focus on a goal that's going to matter a lot more for me. Now, is Bezos or Zuckerberg or, or others, are they going to do that? You know, that's not really any of my business. Mm. If, if they want to keep doing what they're doing, that's okay. But I have to make sure through the game for talent, through the game for customers, the, uh, the laws of attraction, I have to make sure that my idea is winning over their idea every single day. He works in ideas, Trevor. You, you work in a scoreboard, yeah. but, but it's, it's got to be tough, especially playing in your, in your prime as you did against Tiger in his prime mm. to, to keep yourself from trying to overreach perhaps at, at certain times yeah. and maybe just pick your battles. It's different, you know, it, it's different than business because what I'm good at and what Tiger's good at, he's much better at than me. <laughs> and, so, and so, like, you know, I was fortunate enough to spend a lot of time with him in Orlando practicing and playing the odd practice round. And, uh, you know, even just at home in practice, he would hit shots where you're just like, oh, I mean, how, what is, how does he do that? Like, there's no way I can do that. How am I supposed to beat this guy? And... Uh, you know, a quick, quick funny story. A Adam Scott and I have hung out together a lot over the years. We turned professional at the same time in Europe. And we were playing a tournament down at uh, Doral many years ago, probably 15 years ago. And uh, we, uh, you know, everybody was just trying to emulate Tiger and try and find ways to see how we could compete with this guy on the golf course. And uh, so we'd all be in the gym in the morning. And he, he sort of really took the working out in golf to a next level. 
So now we're in the gym and we're trying to do what he's doing and uh, we're practicing and all these kinds of things. We're getting stronger. And uh, we're all teeing off about the same time in the one afternoon. And we're in a room like this, family dining. We're going to get something to eat before we go play. And Adam and I are sitting and we're eating. And uh, Tiger comes with two of the biggest plates of food you've ever seen. Okay? <laughs> and he sits at the table with us. And he will see two plates of food down. He's like, all right, guys, have a good one. We'll see you later. He gets up and walks out. And, and Adam looks at, looks at me and he's like, man, he's not only intimidating us in the gym and on the golf course. <laughs> this guy's eating more than us as well. <laughs> you know, what is going on out here? And so, you know, it was, it was a fascinating time. Um, because it, it drove a lot of us crazy because, you know, we've all got this ego of, and dreams of wanting to be the best. And I've, you know, sacrificed a lot of time over the years trying to hone my skills. And our best just quite mm. simply was not good enough to, to get a stranglehold on him. I mean, he just constantly had his foot. Every now and then someone would pop up and win a tournament, but he pretty much constantly had his <laughs> foot on our head. And, um, but... You know, like I say to people too, I'm thankful for Tiger Woods. You know, my kids will send him a Christmas card for the rest <laughs> of their lives because, you know, because of Tiger Woods and the um, spotlight that he shone on our sport uh, and the different partners like Grant Thornton and the rest that started getting involved in golf, um, you know, I was able to, to ride his coattails from a financial standpoint too. So, uh, yeah, I mean... You know, I'll always let him through the door before <laughs> me. Well, <laughs> I, we'll always remember Immelman won. Immelman won Woods <laughs> 2. Woods 2. Every now you said, oh, he, he dominated. But I, it shows. He got him when he counted. That uh, was a big I've tournament. Heard, I've heard of, of Tiger intimidating on a lot of fronts. I've never heard him intimidating in player dining. How many guys eating more than us? <laughs> that's got to be, be tough. Just, just Unbelievable. carbo load and, and then goes out and shoots 66 <laughs> on you. Uh, all right. Well, as you said, this is a, a special edition of this podcast, and we're doing this in front of a, an audience with Grant Thornton. And, and so we're going to turn this over now to some audience Q&A. And, Dan, I've got one I want to start with you. We've talked a lot about the mental side of being a golfer and being inside the ropes and playing against Tiger Woods, but what's it like being the CEO and what are the mental challenges there in, in commanding a team and leading a company and, and sometimes dealing with the pressures that those decisions can bring? Well, yeah, I mean, in the business world, the amount of diversity is really, it, that, that it takes to really be a top class team is huge. And what I mean by diversity is you have so many different people from different walks of life, with different backgrounds, different beliefs about things, and, and trying to find the common thread of the values that are underneath all those things, um, that's really, I think, the, the key for, for me and for gravity payment success, but then also understanding how I need to show up as a leader every day. Because, you know, maybe... Um, when we were a company of 50 people, I could you know, walk into the office with my chest puffed out one day and then kind of sulking the next, and everyone knows me well enough that it's mm. not really a big deal. But once you get into being a larger size company, they're both problematic because you know, I need to understand that you know, I'm, I'm in a position where my megaphone, whether I want to accept it or not, is big, and, and the, the power distance starts to grow and grow. And so to me, like trying to find that listening, that humility to really understand, but not take things personally. 
you know, getting to a place where it's like, oh, I did something that offended somebody. Like, that's really hurtful as a CEO. I don't want to offend anybody. I want to motivate and be mm -hmm. a powerful, impactful, positive force for people. But, you know, that person that I offended, they've been through a lot harder things in life than, than that moment that I'm going through. Mm -hmm. And so understanding to take the good of what they're trying to share with me in terms of it's yeah. feedback. How can I do better? And that's that part that's a little bit like hard to define. And I think that's very germane to what we're struggling with as a society right now, because we are as a society allowing more and more voices to come to the forefront, and that's a positive. But what that means is those of us that have had a voice longer, that have been on that stage longer, we need to find a way to accept and not be offended and not take personal the fact that these other voices are giving us more information about how to lead all of us together forward. Trevor, I got one for you here. We, we talked a lot, as you said, about the, the mental approach and how you live your life inside the roast, but how big of an impact does camaraderie have? You shared this story with Adam Scott, mm -hmm. but in terms of how you set your game plan for each round or for each tournament, how much of an influence does the camaraderie on tour and sort of the brotherhood impact how you set your individual plan in place? Well, I'll, I'll start off by saying that it's changed a lot. From when I turned professional, um, Players were pretty guarded, um, and uh, it took a little bit of time. That's why you didn't see rookies kind of come in and win straight away like you see now. You know, back when I started, it was a little tougher to kind of break into the into the system and uh, and get comfortable before you. You know, the old adage was, you have to pay your dues before you can win. <laughs> and uh, you know, nowadays. Uh, it's just so much more looser. Guys are going on holidays together and, uh, and hanging out more and more. Um, you know, you see guys high-fiving each other off the good shots. I mean, when I turned pro, that you were, you'd look at the guy going, you know, how dare you hit a good shot right now? You weren't going <laughs> I'm to trying to beat you. You weren't going to Baker's Bay in 2004 and <laughs> jumping off the roof into the, into the water? No, so things, you know, it, it's, it's changed. Um, it's a lot of fun to watch. You know, guys appreciating each other's skill appreciating how hard that they've worked to get to that point, uh, the mental strength, the sacrifice, sometimes even the good fortune to be able to pull off the right shot in the right moment. Um, uh, it's fun to be able to see competitors acknowledge each other and say, you know, great job. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that's how kind of uh, things are changing. But, you know, you've you got to be careful as an athlete because... You don't want to give all your secrets away. I think, but it's very, very important, going back to something I said earlier, is the, the biggest hurdle is finding out what works for you because it's so easy to get lost in trying to mimic somebody else, like eating two plates of food before <laughs> you go play because that's what the greatest player is doing. So, you know, that doesn't work for everybody. You've got to find what works for you. Dan, uh, back over to you here with this one. Uh, what do you think will be the tipping point in the U.S. for us to truly address income inequality, and is it perhaps a new generation of leaders? Well, I, I don't know. I hope so. I'm, I'm looking for it every day. If you look at uh, last year in the United States, 90% of all new wealth created went to the top 1%. And a huge percentage of that went to the top 1% of the top 1%. And that money needs to go somewhere. It needs to be invested. And it's not like that person's going to go out and buy, like, 
you know, 10,000 burgers at like Burger King or, or uh, one of my clients that I like, mm. Dick's, which is our local version in Seattle that we like a little better. But what, what I think what we need to realize as a society is there is a cost to that. And we need to have a society where we are going toward the ideal that this country was founded on, which is that we're all created equal. That was the ideal that we were supposed to be working toward. And we've never gotten there, but we, you know, we're hopefully inching in that direction. And I think that wealth inequality and income inequality is the biggest threat because if I literally have a thousand times more money than you, and you have one thousandth the amount of money that I have, and the way we value the money, the way we think about money as a society, we all see that that won't work. And so I do think it comes down to leadership, but I really think it comes down to vision and the choices that you make. And I wonder if maybe the top designer, the top developer, the top business leader just refuses to work at a company that won't take these problems as seriously as they are 10, 15, 20 years from now. And I think that if you're a business leader out there and you want to get ahead of that curve, the way you can do it is to start addressing these issues before you get to that place, because that's where we're going. So, you know, Wayne Gretzky said, right, skate to where the puck is going, not where it is now. So if you want to skate to where the puck is going, you can start innovating in this direction. And what you'll find is the most talented people that really care, that really are aware of what's going on, will come find you and your business will prosper. I'm going to close things out with one more for you here, Dan. Your dad, Ron's in the audience. He's a business author. He's a CEO. Hi, Dad. Uh, how, up, has, dad? how has Dad impacted your approach to both leadership and culture? You know, when I, was, uh, when I was nine years old, I was running my dad's slideshow. He was giving a speech, and I screwed up. It was one of those slides that goes around in circles. <laughs> and I screwed up, and I pressed it when I wasn't supposed to because I thought I got the signal. And then... He tried to get me to go back, but I thought he wanted me to go forward another one. <laughs> and I went back to the hotel, and I literally started crying my eyes out. I was nine years old, and my dad's like, you know what, Dan? You're doing great running the slideshow. You're going to be fine. I know that was tough. He just, you know, talked me through it. He was there next to me. That's cool. And he was like that shining light for me. And I think that I still need that sometimes, to be honest. Um, but I know that there's people around me that need that as well. And so how do we be that shining light for each other? And that's what I learned from my dad that day. Be the shining awesome. light. I feel yeah. like that's a good place for us to, to put a pin in this and, and end what has been a great discussion. I thank you, Dan Price, CEO of Gravity Payments. Thank you, Trevor Immelman. Thanks. I hope you look forward to Patrick Reed's master's dinner here in I, a few I weeks. Am. Bring an appetite. He's, he's <laughs> throwing ribeye your way. Uh, but, but thanks again uh, to our listeners and to uh, our partners, Grant Thornton, for presenting this special edition of the Golf Channel podcast. I'm your host, Will Gray. Appreciate you listening in, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... I got a charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Life is a highway. 
and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.